Thanks, everyone. The first reading tonight is from Psalm 119, and that's on page 436 of your Bibles. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their hearts. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have laid down precepts that are, that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Do good to your servant and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed and who stray from your commands. Remove from me scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counsellors. Uh, and the second reading is on page 842 from 2 Timothy. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus... To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I might be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join me, join with me in the suffering for the gospel. By the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald, an apostle and a teacher, that is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, because I know 
I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Thanks, Rob. Let me add my welcome. If I haven't met you, my name is Paul. Please do come and say hello at the end of the service. You've joined us at the beginning of a new series. We're looking at 2 Timothy, um, so please keep your Bibles open at 2 Timothy. I have to say 2 Timothy is one of my favorite letters in the New Testament. It's a letter that's brought me a great encouragement, a great comfort over the years. It's a letter in ministry that I keep going back to. It keeps reminding me why I do what I do. And I hope that as we go through to the next five weeks, uh, you'll come to treasure this little letter called 2 Timothy, as I do. It's really a, a, a letter with one big theme. This is the big theme of the whole letter. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. So that phrase, do not be ashamed, or don't be embarrassed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, let's put it in a positive. This letter says, love the gospel. Stick with the gospel of Christ. Cherish it. Adore it. Live by it. Because it's the most precious news in the whole world. Here's a man who wasn't ashamed of the gospel. His name is Hugh Latimer. In 1555 in the UK in a place called Oxford, uh, this man was burnt at the stake. Why was he burnt at the stake? Because he loved the gospel. He was not ashamed of the gospel. He refused to deny the gospel, and so he was burnt at the stake. What struck me was not just his faith, but whilst he was being burnt at the stake, uh, his friends and his colleagues, what were they doing? They were going around the UK preaching that very same gospel that caused him to be killed at the stake. They weren't ashamed of it because they believed it was the best news in the world. Here's another man who was not ashamed of the gospel. I don't know his name. He's a Cambodian Christian in the killing fields of Cambodia in 1979. And among with millions of other Christians, he was killed for his faith, but he wasn't ashamed. But again, what struck me was that whilst all the Christians were being killed in Cambodia, those who were spared, what did they do? They went around preaching that same gospel because they were so convinced. They, they loved the gospel and they were convinced it was the best news in the world. Let's bring it closer to home. It's the girl called Rachel Joy Scott. You might have heard of her. You might have read her book, her memoirs. Uh, she was murdered at the Columbine massacre in Denver. Uh, she died for refusing to deny Christ. What's even more striking was that at her funeral, her parents and her family, they got up and they spoke about Jesus. And they spoke about the gospel and their trust and their confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They weren't ashamed. Uh, come with me to the year 2000, and I'm standing in front of a bishop in the UK. I won't tell you which diocese in the UK. About to leave Bible college. And to paraphrase this bishop, he said to me, Paul, I will not ordain you if you keep preaching this thing about God's son who was sacrificed. It's like child abuse. I find that intellectually flawed. 
And if you keep preaching that thing, then I won't ordain you. So what did I do? About to leave college, I've been there for three years. I just said, don't ordain me. I will keep preaching that gospel because I believe that's what the Bible says and I believe it's the best news in the world. And so I left college and I was the only person who wasn't ordained. But that's okay (laughs) because I believe the gospel. And you know, as we sit here tonight, uh, we are fighting for the truth of that gospel in our very own cities, in our schools, in our universities, in our churches, where that message, that truth of the gospel is being compromised, is being watered down, is being denied. And you and I need to be persuaded it is the best news in the world so we don't compromise and we're never, never ashamed of it. Don't you find it strange that, that millions of Christians around the world are being persecuted for that very gospel and yet parents, Christian parents, still sit down at, at dinner time with their young kids and they open the Bible and they teach them about Jesus and they're not ashamed. Why would you do that? Why would you teach your kids about Jesus when you know that if they believe, they may be persecuted for their faith? Why? Because you are thoroughly convinced and persuaded that the gospel really is the best news in the world. That's why. Perhaps you're sitting there tonight, you're thinking... Yeah, I know that, Paul, but surely it's okay just to compromise a bit. Uh, Paul, if you, if you just, just preach the nice bits of the gospel, preach about love and joy and forgiveness and peace, then, then more people would come to church. Uh, don't talk about hell, uh, and don't talk about, about Jesus being the only way, and more people would come to church. And I say to you, no, I'm not going to do that, because I'm thoroughly persuaded that the gospel, in its totality, is the best news in the world. I hope, friends, that from time to time you do ask yourselves the very simple questions like, what do I really believe about Jesus? Am I thoroughly persuaded that this is true? And I hope you stop and think, why am I persuading my my family and my friends to believe in Jesus when I know that if they do, then they may be persecuted for their faith? And I hope you sometimes think, how are we going to make sure that, that this gospel is protected so that the next generation can hear that good news. I hope you ask those questions. Well, 2 Timothy is a letter, a great, great letter that will answer those kind of questions because the one basic message of this, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Uh, Paul is saying, love the gospel, cherish it, live it, Teach it, equip the next generations to love it and and keep it and preach it and teach it. Stick with Jesus because God's precious gospel is the most beautiful news in the whole world. Let me give you a a brief overview of the whole letter. Uh, 2 Timothy is a very personal, a very intimate letter. Who's it from? Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, uh, the man who once persecuted Christians is now preaching about Jesus because he's seen the risen Lord Jesus. Who's he writing to in verse 2? To Timothy, my dear son or my beloved son. It's a term of affection. Uh, He's writing to his young co-worker, his young protege, if you want, his friend Timothy. It's not just a private letter. If you flick over just chapter 4, verse 22... Uh, The Lord be with your spirit and grace be with you. The you there is plural. 
So he's saying it's a private letter for public reading. And it's written whilst Paul was in prison in Rome. It's about AD 67, the latter half of Nero's reign. But to get to the heart of this letter, you've got to understand the man he's writing to, the man Timothy. Who's Timothy? Look at this, Acts chapter 16. So we first meet Timothy. Uh, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived. His mother was a Jewess and a believer, but his father was a Greek. The brothers spoke well of him, of Timothy, and Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. So Paul is a, so Timothy is a believer. His mother was a believer. His grandmother was a believer. His father's a Greek. It appears that Paul was a, a, a bit of a star student, if you want. He learned quickly. And Paul said, I want that man, Timothy, to come with me on my missionary journeys. He's mentioned seven times as a co-worker with Paul in the letters that he writes. And what you find is that Paul left Timothy in charge of a very important, a very strategic church in Ephesus. So that's a picture of Timothy, an able young man pastoring a church, an important church in Ephesus. But you might have heard it said that, uh, that, that Timothy was timid. You know, timid Timothy, that's how, you, that's how many Christians describe him. And they get that from chapter 1, verse 7. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity. And you get this idea of a young man who's struggling to cope in a position of, of leadership way beyond his competence or his maturity. And so people will quote uh, 1 Timothy 4, where it says, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth. And you think, oh, you know, this 20-year-old trying to lead a church. Or they quote 1 Timothy 5 about taking some wine for your stomach. think, oh, you know, he's a physically weak man. Or they quote uh, chapter, chapter 1, verse 4, uh, recalling your tears. And they say, oh, Timothy's an emotional guy. Uh, that's not Timothy at all. In those days, and I'm very thankful for this, but in those days to be young meant that you were in your 40s. He's a 40-year-old leading a church. He's not physically weak, but he traveled all around Asia Minor with Paul. You couldn't do that in those days if you were physically weak. And he's not emotional. He's rightly emotional because he longs to see Paul again. This is a, a man in his 40s leading a church. And that's why I love this letter. Because Timothy is not timid. He's just a typical Christian man. A normal Christian who is struggling with the pressures of running a church and watching People walk away from Christ. And watching a church down the road start up that preaches a false gospel and seeing lots of his church leave the true gospel to listen to the false gospel of success and happiness and joy and wealth now. This is a typical man who loves people, who loves Jesus, who disciples well, but he's in danger of being discouraged. Because people are walking away. Now what does Timothy need to hear? The same as you and I need to hear. Stick with the gospel. Preach the gospel. Never be ashamed of that gospel. This is actually Paul's last letter. It's his dying words if you want. And I find it fascinating that he wants Timothy to visit him before he dies. Uh, not for sentimental reasons. But he just wants to equip Timothy to keep preaching that gospel after Paul dies. Really, three themes to the whole letter. 
First theme is suffering for the gospel. Paul's suffering. He's in Rome in prison. He says in chapter 1, suffer with me for the gospel. And friends, if you and I are going to be willing to suffer for the gospel, if we're going to be able to suffer the gospel, you need to be thoroughly convinced that this gospel is the best news in the world. The second big theme is guarding the truth of the gospel. Because in Ephesus, where Timothy is pastoring, uh, there are people who are preaching a false gospel. And Paul warns Timothy, people will like it. It will spread like wildfire and people will leave your church. But that's okay. You just guard the truth of this gospel. But the big theme, don't be ashamed of the gospel. The key verse is 1 verse 8. The key verse for the whole letter. Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. Now, Paul has every right to write those words because Paul is in prison for his faith. And people have deserted Paul. Even well-known Christians like Demas and Phygelus and Hermogenes, they were embarrassed by what Paul was teaching. And Paul says, don't be ashamed, don't be ashamed, don't be ashamed. And I am thoroughly convinced, my friends, that that is the news that you and I need to hear tonight. Because we are tempted to be ashamed. And we're tempted to compromise and leave bits out and water down the Bible or just get our scissors out and, and chop out bits of the Bible that we don't like. And so we need to hear 2 Timothy tonight. Perhaps you're a, a young Christian here today and you want to know how you're going to keep going until the, the, the day the Lord calls you home. And this series will teach you, just stick with Jesus. Don't listen to false gospel, just stick to the truth. Maybe you're an older Christian, you've been a Christian for many, many years, and you're growing weary, and maybe life is tough, hasn't turned out as you expected. And maybe you're tempted to walk to another church that will teach you things that will give you pleasure and happiness and success now, and that would be nice for you to hear. And 2 Timothy says, no, 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 stick with the true gospel. And maybe you're not a Christian here tonight, and you're going, what's this all about? Well, 2 Timothy will teach you what the gospel really is. Timothy was a man who learned his faith from his mother and from his grandmother. During the course of this series, I'm going to interview, people, interview different people every week. I'm going to kick off with Dave Freeman, because Dave grew up in a Christian home and learned the faith from your parents, who learned it from their grandparents. Do you want to just tell us about your parents' faith, what that looked like and how or your grandparents' faith, and how they sort of taught you the gospel? So I think on my dad's side, that's what I'll probably focus on, I'd be the fifth generation Christian in line. So my great-great-grandpa actually came over from England to work on a farm in Victoria. And so he came over not as a believer, but while he was here in Australia, there was a little Methodist revival that took place. And so he became a believer... And then from there, yeah, God's been good and the gospel's been passed down. So he, when my dad was growing up, my parents, very significant that the Lord used my life. So my dad grew, grew up. It was his grandma who was very significant in him being taught. So his father, well, both grandparents were Christians, but in particular grandma, she was key in teaching the kids and the grandkids the Bible. So they grew up in town, they would on the farm, they'd go into town, but on the way back, they'd go to my dad's grandparents and their grandma, who was Ethel, would sit down with the kids 
and also Auntie Edna, my dad's Auntie Edna, would sit down with them and teach them Sunday school every week. So that was very significant, my father's growing up. And then into my life, I can still remember my father sharing that a time came. They, there were seven churches in the district where they grew up. And so my dad was sharing with me once how a new minister came to preach in the church in the town that they lived. And Pa Freeman went to the man and said, you don't preach the Bible, the gospel that's in the Bible, or that Mr Wesley preached. And so Pa Freeman would pack the family up each Sunday morning and they'd go to the next town to go to church. And then coming back, they would stop at my dad's grandparents to have Bible study and Sunday school with, with them. So growing up, my parents, I think, sharing different stories was very significant. And me coming to Lord, my parents were missionaries. So before I was born, they jumped on a ship from Victoria and headed over to South Africa. And so I grew up in South Africa. And so growing up with my parents was significant seeing their faith. But in particular, they spent a lot of time with the kids. So every night, whenever it was possible, we'd always have dinner together. And then after, after dinner, we'd read the Bible and we'd pray together as a family. We'd all be sent off to bed and we'd all have a little Bible reading or something that would be organised for us to do. And then before we'd go to sleep, I still remember either mum or dad would come in and pray with us before we went off to sleep. So that was very significant growing up with that and then going off to Sunday school. And I met my Sunday school teacher. She's just moved to Australia just a couple of years ago, Auntie Gloria. And so she was a wonderful lady. She taught us all our kids. I've got songs that go through my head that I still fall back on when times are hard and things are struggling. Mm. So growing up, so with Bible times and the family, reading the Bible, going to Sunday school. And then during church, we'd, all the kids would stay in church during the main service and I couldn't always get what the preacher was saying. So I'd just read the Bible hmm. and then I'd write questions and pass them down. The, there's six of us, so I'd pass it down to my dad who would sometimes write a question or he'd say, we'll chat later and send it back. So, so all that was significant growing up and seeing the conviction of my parents and I could keep going. But seeing them live out the faith was very significant and the way they prayed for all us kids were intentional made hard decisions so there are times sporting decisions others when my father would say to me no and he'd say why give the reason from the bible why he believed that and his responsibility and so looking back and as i got older i really respect my parents for the convictions that they had even though they were hard at times they did what was right and so if you want to come back at me on anything i can are there times when you saw your parents not being ashamed of the gospel and how that sort of taught you to always stand up for the gospel so growing up in South Africa, it was during the apartheid time, so it was, everything was going on. So we had people from the churches that would come and stay in our houses when that wasn't the right thing to do. And we would go to the different areas and go to churches in the different areas. So that was very significant for me. That my, We would go from our neighbourhood where we had to live and we would just drive off and go to other neighbourhoods. And so for my parents, we'd be the only white people going into those areas. And so seeing my parents sharing, getting involved with people's lives, wanting people to grow in the Lord. And then trips at my dad, a lot of things I didn't know that my dad got up to, but as I got older where he'd head off to different places in Africa and he was involved with different things with the gospel. I'm going to give you uh, three reasons tonight, friends, why we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel, all from chapter one. First reason is this. This is a really key one. We should not be ashamed of the gospel because it really is good news. That's what the word means, good news. So I think we often use the word gospel a bit like a buzzword. You know, gospel this and gospel that and gospel that. But do we really know what the gospel is? 
I reckon verses 9 and 10 are a great summary of the gospel. Verse 8 says, Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Here's the gospel. God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. That's the gospel. God has saved us. He's rescued us from sin and from death and from hell. And he's called us to a a life set apart for him. And the key bit is it's not dependent on what we've done. It's not dependent on, on how much Bible you know or how long you've been at church or how many good works you do. It's all because of grace. What's grace about? It's there in verse 9. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus. Grace is all about Jesus. He is grace. Christ Jesus, who, who really lived, he, he, though he was rich in heaven, he left his riches to become poor for us so that we might become rich. That is grace. Jesus, who, who really did die, we've sung about that, you know, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. It's all about Jesus. What struck me about the gospel, I often don't think about this when I think about the gospel, is verse 9. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus. When was it? When was grace given to you? Look at it, verse 9. Before the beginning of time. That's amazing, isn't it? I'll read it again. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. That's what the Bible tells us, that that God chose us before creation. God knew who would be be his before the beginning of time. It's called the doctrine of predestination. And instead of of it causing us to be intellectually challenged or uh, discouraged, the the doctrine of predestination is supposed to be a, a great comfort and a great assurance that God knew you before the beginning of time. Timothy, Paul... If you're a believer here tonight, you and me were chosen way back in eternity. Before you even existed, God knew you would be his. That's part of the gospel. You see, the gospel is not about you choosing God. It's not about you finding God. It's about way back at the beginning of time, God knew you by name and knew that, you, that he would call you home. So when did that happen? When was grace revealed to you? Back at the beginning of time, but, verse 10, but it is now being revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. It's kind of saying grace stepped into the world in human flesh, in a man called Jesus Christ. And because... Animal sacrifice could never take away our sin, and animal sacrifice could never save us. So Christ was sent into the world. He appeared in the flesh as a saviour. I love the word now in verse 10. When did grace appear in your life? Back at the beginning of time, yes, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our saviour. Grace appeared in your life at Calvary, then. Because back at Calvary, your sins were on his shoulder. Back at Calvary, God knew that you would exist in 2010 and you would be a wretched sinner who needed saving and he paid for your sins then at Calvary. He paid it all on that cross then. That's the gospel. Not that one day you woke up and thought, oh, I think I might discover Jesus today. God chose you back in history 
Jesus paid for it at Calvary. So today you can say, I'm forgiven. I'm saved. What happened when Jesus stepped into the world? Verse 10. Jesus destroyed death. He defeated death. That enemy that stalks us all our lives. He crashed through the barrier called death as the tomb was empty. And Jesus brought life. True life. Purposeful life. Life knowing our creator. And Jesus brought immortality. We deserve mortality, but he brought immortality to light. When? Through that gospel. That is the gospel. It started at eternity. Jesus steps into the world. He saves us, and he saves us from death and mortality. And that's the best news in the world. But you've got to grasp verse 9. You've got to understand the second half of verse 9 is all about grace. Not because of anything we've done but because of God's own purpose and grace. Uh, Timothy's goodness didn't earn his salvation. My good works don't earn my salvation. It's all undeserved. It's all grace. Now come and admit it. Admit it, you struggle with that, don't you? You struggle with grace because deep down all of us want in some way to contribute just a little bit to our salvation. It's just the way we're wired. We want to think that there's something deep down inside of us that God looks at and says, yeah, yeah, they deserve that. That's not how grace works. Grace says there's nothing, there's nothing that I've done to earn my favor with God. It's all about him. See, if you think that you deserve it, then you'll spend your whole life on this sort of treadmill trying to earn more favor with God and more favor with God. But when you've understood grace, when you've understood that you deserve nothing from God, but, but God has seen you and he loves you and he saved you, not because of what you've done, but because of his love and mercy and grace. It's the most liberating truth in the whole world. Now, Timothy needs to hear that gospel to keep going, to keep preaching. I need to hear it, and you need to hear it. It's kind of like you have to wake up every single day and keep preaching the gospel to yourself. Today, I'm a wretched sinner. A wretched sinner who deserves nothing, but thanks be to God for my Savior Christ. But I think as Christians, we can get to the danger of reading lots of Christian books, and we read Christian books on marriage and dating and work and family life and money and but we've kind of stopped reading books on the gospel. And I wonder whether we think, oh, I know that. Yeah, I get that. You can never fully understand the mystery that's called the gospel. You can never plumb the depths of what it cost Jesus to, to die for you. Or some people say, oh, Paul, that's too simple. It is simple, isn't it? You do nothing. <laughs> Jesus does it all. He pays for it all. Because he loves you that much. And it's very, very humbling. It's really humbling to say, can't do anything. And that's why you should never be ashamed, because it's the best news in the whole world. It's all about grace. Let me give you a second reason. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, because the gospel promises you life. Look again at verse 1. 
Anything strike you as strange about verse 1? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Yeah, that's how Paul starts all his letters. But then he adds this unusual phrase. It only comes here in 2 Timothy. According to the promise of life that's in Christ Jesus. What is that promise of life? What, what is this life that the gospel promises us? Is it all about life now? Is it about enjoying life in the here and now? Well, flick to the end of, end of 1 Timothy. It's just about one page. See how 1 Timothy ends. It might help us. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. It says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do, to do good now, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. This is it, verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What is life? Life is doing good now. Life is trusting God to provide now. Life is being sure of your salvation now to have that joy and that peace with God now. But this isn't real life. This isn't as good as it gets. The life that is truly life is the life in the coming age, the life that is to come. It's called future. It's called then, not now. And I reckon that's why we're tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, because we want it all in the here and now. We want all the blessings of life in the here and now, don't we? That's just the way we're wired. We live in a society where everything is, is now, isn't it? You, know, you can go home tonight... You can wake up at 2 in the morning as you're about to watch the soccer and you can log online and you can do your shopping. And you can order a book right now from Books Depository in the UK and get it cheap and it'll be here by Wednesday. And if you're short of cash tonight, well, just pop down to the ATM and just get your cash out now. And you kind of have that mentality with a Christian life. I want it all now. I want all the blessings of life now perfection now and happiness now and success now and let me tell you if your church preached that life success happiness perfection now as soon as hardships comes as soon as troubles comes and pain comes and persecution comes of course you're going to be ashamed of the gospel because it's failed you hasn't it that's not the true gospel the true gospel says yeah there's great joys and privileges now but True life is to come. It's a future message as well as a present reality. Third reason not to be ashamed of the gospel. Because it's rooted in history. This message is rooted right back in history. Again, it's a strange start to 2 Timothy, verse 3. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did. It's the only place he mentions the forefathers. Paul is saying... My faith is in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and David and Jeremiah, that long line of forefathers who believed the truth of this message. And Timothy's faith, it's not a new thing. Verse 5, I've been reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm now persuaded lives in you also. I think he's just saying to Timothy, Timothy, this message that you believe, this message I preach to you, it's not something new. 
It's not revolutionary. It's not the latest trend. It goes all the way back in history, right back to the beginning of time. See, that's the thing about trends. They just come and go. Fads come and go. So if I was preaching this sermon to you 20 years ago, in the 80s, I'd be standing here in a, a fluoro orange shirt and tight jeans and I had longish hair with a light perm. If I was preaching this message to you in the 90s, I went through my gothic stage, I was wearing black and I thought it was trendy to have a hearing aid so I wore that as a fashion accessory. In the year 2000, I had three quarter length pants and they're so 2000, don't wear them today please. Uh, trends come and go, fads come and go. And if churches just leap on with the, the, the latest trend, the latest fad, then you will sit in church and, and, and today it will be about uh, uh, social action, next year it will be about church planting, the year after it will be about meditations. But the, tr- the church that preaches the true gospel will just preach what our forefathers did. Don't be dazzled by the latest podcasting preachers. Read our early church fathers. Read the church fathers. Read about Calvin and Luther and Simeon and William Wilberforce and Newton and read about the saints of old and what they believed and what they went through because they were not ashamed of the gospel. Read Fox's Book of, Book of Martyrs. Read uh, DC Talks Jesus Freak uh, about real life examples of, of people who were not ashamed of the gospel because that gospel is rooted in history. And Paul is saying to Timothy... Be persuaded about what you believe and then pass it on to the next generation. Verse 6, for this reason, because of the history, I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God. What's the gift of God? It's just preaching and teaching. How is Timothy going to do that? It's going to be hard. Verse 7, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the power of a spirit, not of timidity, not of cowardice, but the Holy Spirit gives Timothy a spirit of power, oh, not muscles, but, but power just to keep on plodding on and keep on preaching that same gospel even when people walk away from you. A spirit of love to keep preaching that same gospel when people are rude to you and arrogant and you find them very hard to love. You just keep on preaching that same gospel. And a spirit of self-discipline to keep on studying the scriptures, stick with it, Keep delving deeper into the word. I have to say, that's what keeps me going. That's what keeps me going week in, week out. The confidence that this word is true, this gospel is true. And the fact that I'm preaching the same gospel today, a gospel of grace, uh, that I, I, I trust the first preacher in this building 125 years ago would have preached. And unless the Lord Jesus Christ returns, I, I pray in 125 years' time, someone will be standing here when I'm dead and buried, and with my risen saviour, preaching that same gospel. I'm preaching tonight. And we need to know it. Because you lose the gospel within two generations. Uh, if I water it down, if, if you water it down and compromise it, if you don't teach the whole gospel to your kids, then their kids won't know the gospel either. And in two generations' time, there'll be no gospel ministry. So don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. That's really the key message from this whole book. Verse 8. See if you spot this in verse 8. 
Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, about Jesus, or ashamed of me, his prisoner. Do you see what Paul does? He says, I'm a political prisoner. I'm in prison for my faith. And Timothy, it will be easy for you to be ashamed of me, because many others have been. But Timothy, if you're going to be ashamed of me, his prisoner, then really you're ashamed of Jesus. To be ashamed of me, his prisoner, is exactly the same as being ashamed of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's face it, even his own disciples were ashamed of Jesus. Do you remember after the crucifixion? And Peter said, I don't know this man. Verse 8 is an urgent plea for us. Don't be ashamed to testify about Jesus and don't be ashamed of Paul, his prisoner. Let me be honest. There are times in my Christian life over the last 20 years where I've been tempted to be ashamed of Jesus. Because there are some things that Jesus said that I wished he'd never said. I wish he'd said that... uh, I am a way and a truth and a life and, and I'm one way to God. But he doesn't say that. As I'm talking to Muslims or to Buddhists or to Hindus, it's tempting to say, you know, yep, your way is okay. But I can't because he is the way and the truth and life. He's the only way to God. And there are times when I wish that Jesus had said, you know, that wide is the road that leads to heaven. But he doesn't. He says narrow. And there are times when I've been tempted to be ashamed of Paul, the prisoner. Because Paul says some things which are politically very incorrect today, aren't they? Paul teaches things about the way to structure churches and about the role of women and about homosexuality. And it's been tempting to say, oh, he's just a bit bigoted or he's homophobic. But you can't be because his word is truth. And you have to grapple with that and say, yeah, I believe that and I love that and it's good. Because we're not swayed by society, we're swayed by the word of God and the truth. And there are times when I've been tempted to be ashamed of other Christians who speak out for Jesus. You know who they are. You know, that really zealous, enthusiastic Christian is always talking about Jesus. And there's times you think, oh, no. <laughs> Or the Fred Nars of this world who stands up, who speaks up for truth. Our own Archbishop, Peter Jensen, who speaks up for truth. And it's tempting to read the paper and you think, oh, no. They're men who believe the gospel and are standing firm for that gospel. So do not be ashamed of them. Because we're ashamed of them, we're really ashamed of Jesus. Maybe you're here tonight and you think, oh, I'm never ashamed of Jesus. I'm never ashamed of the gospel. Really? It's, it's easy not to be ashamed of Jesus when we're sitting here in church or having a nice cup of tea over, over dinner. But as you're sitting in the pub or at work or with your family and the, the topic cur- turns to religion or to church, aren't there times when you've sat there and you've just gone, I don't want to talk about this. So why are we so ashamed? Why do we find it hard to talk about Jesus? I think at its core, 
is that we don't like verse 8. We don't want to suffer. Because Paul says, Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, by the Spirit at work in you. He'll, He'll equip you to suffer. It's clear in verse 11, Of this gospel I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher, and that is why I am suffering as I am. He says, because I'm bold, because I'm preaching Christ, because I'm living the gospel and sharing the gospel, that's why I'm suffering. Now that flies in the face of much teaching today, doesn't it? A lot of teaching will say, I know if you really are an anointed, God-ordained preacher, pastor, teacher, uh, then you should expect success. And Paul says, no, no, if I'm preaching the gospel, I expect not success, but suffering. Uh, Not not praise, but, but persecution. And of course, the shape of that suffering will be determined by your context. In some countries, if you do speak out for Jesus, your suffering will be prison and beatings and injustice. But here, if we speak out for Jesus, then perhaps we should expect material sufferings, just making sacrifices for Jesus, a bit of ridicule, a bit of mocking. What, what enables Paul to go to prison for his faith? What enables him not to be ashamed, even in prison? I'll tell you what enables him, verse 12. I'm not ashamed because I know whom I've believed. I know God. I've met with him, I believe him. He's good, he's gracious, he's kind. I'm convinced that he, God, is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. I believe that God will keep me, and God will keep me for heaven. And once you've grasped that, that the gospel is a gospel of grace, and God is sovereign, and God will sustain you, and God will keep you for glory, then you will not be ashamed of that gospel. And I reckon, deep down, that's the real reason why we're tempted to be ashamed. Because we just don't know God God well enough. We don't really know his sovereignty and his sufficiency and his graciousness and his glory and his majesty. And if you knew him like that, and if you knew that you wanted to be with him and he would keep you and it doesn't matter what you went through, you might suffer, but it's okay. Because he loves me and I'm his son, I'm his daughter then perhaps we wouldn't be ashamed. I'm going to leave you two quick things. One, please, please understand grace. Please don't leave this building tonight without understanding that there is nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. You can't make him love you any more than he does, and you can't make him love you any less. It's all about grace. Please get that right. But secondly, a challenge for you. I'd love you to come back next week and talk to a friend here and just share one way that this week you weren't ashamed of Jesus. Just one way where you could have just walked away or just kept silent, but you weren't and you just spoke up for Jesus. And maybe God would use that to bring someone to know this glorious grace that's found in Christ. Let me pray.
words from Romans. Romans 1. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Our Father, we praise you for your grace. A grace that was, goes back to the beginning of time and a grace that was, that was revealed in the person of Jesus. And the grace that you poured out on us the day that we believed. We praise you for that grace. We don't deserve it. And I pray, Lord God, that every man, woman, and child here tonight would just stand firm in that grace and help us never to be ashamed of that gospel. In Jesus' name.